Let's go to Romans chapter 2, a very, very difficult chapter. I'm astounded at how well it was read this morning because there's an argument all the way through. We've been looking in chapter 1 about the pagan and how the pagan lives and all the pagans that surround the Roman Christians and how some of them have become Christians and they're loved by God. Now we come to Romans 2 and we're looking at the hypocritical person, the self-righteous person who has all the excuses in the world why they don't need to really love the Lord God with all their heart, with all their soul and with all their mind and to be just like Jesus. My first main point though comes from Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. It's about the kindness of God. Romans 2 and verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. How is God so kind to us? Do we need some proof that God is kind to us? Well, the world around us is the best starter, isn't it? Where did the rain come from this morning? In Australia, there are places where there's virtually no rain. And lots of places in the world too. God has given us the rain this morning. God is good to us. The world around us is always proof of God's goodness. Every time somebody breathes God's good air, we demonstrate how indebted we are to God for his kindness. Every time we use God's resources from God's world to make our homes and our clothes and to grow food, we show that God is kind to us. And what about our bodies? How suitable are our hands to do useful work? You tie them behind your back for a day and find out how far you get on and how badly you get on. Imagine that barber trying to get on with his hands tied behind his back. There'd be no income and he wouldn't be talking for too long. He'd be very upset. How valuable are our legs and our arms? How amazing are our eyes? What an invention of God. How marvellous are our minds? the functions of our minds, even the part we don't use. It's also wonderfully complex. God's kindness is displayed not only in the world around us, but in the ordering of that world. God orders all events for the good of those who love him. God orders those events. So many of you have the gift of family and friends. That's God's doing. God explains and he explains in the words of Jesus that Jesus says God causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. It's God who gives these things. God who gives us the sunshine. Some of you come from cold places and you've lived in very cold places. You long for the sunshine to come back again. It's God's goodness, God's kindness and God's kindness is seen not only in the earth around us in God's ordering of everything, it's also seen in many spiritual things, especially in the hearing of God's gospel. Not everybody knows about the Lord Jesus, that he loves them and that he's died for them. But you know, this is God's kindness. You were placed in the very focus of Christian light. Won't you think about this? You should be thinking about it often. There was a time, even in the Western world, when a person would have to work for years to buy a Bible. 
Now the word of God lies on your table and many of you have several copies. Isn't this a stupendous blessing from God? This is the land, Australia is a land of open Bibles. We are able to read it without anybody torturing us, wanting to know what we're doing with this book in our hands, wanting to know what we're going to do when we hand somebody else one of these books. And then, of course, so many of us are so well educated. This is God's kindness, that that wonderful mind that we have has been trained. You see an unruly dog when you're out walking and won't do what the master asks. And that's what a mind that hasn't been educated is like. It won't do what you want it to do. You hear of soldiers in Afghanistan who cannot count to ten. What a privileged place it is here in Australia where the littlest, smallest children, people with all kinds of things wrong with them can still have a formal education and have it for next to nothing. You have that education and you have the ability to read and you've been trained to think and to think logically. In all these things you prove the riches of God's kindness and here Paul is making a very specific charge so that people can see where they stand before God. He's making a very specific charge against self-righteous and hypocritical people who despise and who make light of and to regard as something cheap, the riches of God's kindness. Here we have a person, a kind of person, who has never taken the trouble really to examine the love and kindness of God. Where does the kindness come from? Well, love is patient, love is kind. It all comes from God's love, his character. And Paul wants us to think of the riches. This is a vast treasury with endless wealth in it. You never exhaust this treasury, the riches of God's kindness. And then there's God's tolerance. God puts up with our rebellion and our sin. Why is it that God doesn't strike us down the moment we sin? This is the riches of God's tolerance. God does not punish us immediately, and why not? This used to puzzle me as a little boy. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were going to die if they sinned. But they didn't die straight away. That's God's tolerance. He gave them opportunity to repent and to turn from sin. This is his tolerance and his patience. He not only puts up with our deliberate sin and all its debasing and disgusting wickedness and its hypocritical excuses, but God also waits his time. God is the God of wonderful tolerance and patience. Why is that? Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? God is giving us opportunity to be saved. Do not make the mistake that God is so tolerant that he will not judge sin, though. As Paul goes on to argue the case, God does judge all sin. And this takes me to my second main point. My second main point is about God's judgment day. God's judgment day. God's judgment will be individual, an individual judgment. Verse verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. When God comes to judge, we won't be judged as families or marriages or churches or people groups, or nations. 
Each individual will stand before God. This is not a judgment of people in groups. This is an individual and a personal judgment. All will arise to this ultimate sentence of what God has to say about each one of us. Oh yes, believers will be there as well as unbelievers. Paul outlines this a little bit clearer in chapter 14 and verse 10. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, chapter 14 verse 10. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue confess to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says the same thing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, whether good or worthless. Each one will stand. There will be no distinctions. It will be an individual judgment. There will be no distinctions recognized. Chapter 2 of Romans verse 9 and 10. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who doth evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. No distinctions will be recognized. Judgment will also be according to our deeds. Verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he or she has done. There will be two destinies, one destiny or another for each one of us. God will announce one of the two destinies. There is the destiny of eternal life. Verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality he will give eternal life. For that lady who is called Mrs. Persistence in doing good, that's where she will that's what she will have, eternal life. For that woman who is always seeking God's glory and God's honor, that's what she will have is eternal life, Mrs. Glory and Honor. And what about Mr. Immortality? That's what he's most interested in. The life to come. And he lives his life according to this. He will have eternal life. Of course, there is the other, t- the, the life that is full, a quality life, a relationship of uh, a life that is endless, but a quality of life, life to the full, is an eternal life that God has. But then there's the other destiny of God's wrath and anger, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, that teenager who always wants what he wants or what she wants, Miss Self-Seeking or Mr. Self-Seeking. And then there's that bloke who always goes, I've heard something about that before. He's Mr. Reject the Truth. I've heard a bit of that. And God speaks to him again in his conscience. He sees a sunset. Or he's at a funeral service and it's packed out. And this fellow who's worked with him, he realizes that life at best is very brief, like a falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf. And he's got to be in time and God speaks to him, but he rejects the truth. He doesn't want the message that he's hearing. He's playing with the internet one night 
and he sees this message that God is speaking to him too. It's a piece from the Bible or he hears it in a movie. He didn't really want to hear the truth but God is speaking to him. He's Mr. Reject the Truth and he just keeps doing that until it's too late and the door is shut. And it's too late. God no longer speaks. His Holy Spirit no longer strives with him. Mr. Reject the Truth. And then there's that person who always we could say misses follow evil. She follows the gossip. She follows the, the trends in society. She follows everything else except what God wants in her life. Even when she's 14, she's like that. When she's 16, she's like that. When she's 24, 44, 54, 64, 74, God keeps speaking to her, but she still follows evil. That's what she wants. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This is the other destiny. There will be, verse 8, there will be wrath and anger. My dear friends, some of you I know very well. I've worked with you, I've laughed with you and enjoyed your company. This is something so tremendous that I scarcely know how to speak it. But it is here and throughout your Bible. This involves intense suffering of spirit for those who reject the truth. Intense suffering in the mind and in the heart. Endless, eternal remorse. That's not life, is it? It is existence. If the Bible did not teach this, I wouldn't dare speak of it. I've spent most of my life working with little children. They want to know about these things. I'm very careful what I say. This is hated by every person that doesn't know the Lord. I know there are thousands who do not come into a place of worship because of this teaching, but the truth stands. There's not a word in the Bible about a second chance. It is what you and I do in this world, in this life, that determines our eternal destiny. What about the flood with Noah? The door was shut. What about a second chance, maybe maybe a second chance for Pharaoh. He had all his chances and blew each one of them. Was there a second chance after he drowned and all those with him? No, there wasn't. I've never heard of a second chance unless it's some strong aberration or wicked heresy. There's no such thing in the Bible. This is doubtless the most solemn and the most momentous and the most tremendous thing that a child or a man or woman could ever think about. Did you know, verse 16, the Lord Jesus is not only the Saviour, but he's also the judge. We read it just a little while ago. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Jesus is absolutely fair. If you and I don't realize about the anger of God being upon us and that nothing can save us except the death of the Lord Jesus himself from our particular sin and nothing can save us from God's anger, then we haven't got God's gospel at all. We desperately need Jesus. Let's not just think of ourselves. We live in God's world, don't we? Where there are millions of other people in our generation. 
Let us think of the teeming masses around us in God's world and let us realize their position and destiny. And this will bring home to us why we're here and our responsibility for them. And this will lead us to patient and persistent and penitent prayer. Patient prayer. We don't want answers overnight. We don't have to have answers overnight because we have a God who is patient. He will lead us to pray patiently and persistently. I could tell you extraordinary stories. I've been a Christian all my life and come from a Christian family for many, many generations. My grandmother and my two great aunts, they prayed and prayed for their brother and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for 60 years for their brother and eventually he came to know the Lord. That happens. Be persistent. Be penitent. As you come, say, Lord, I have nothing in myself. But you've given me responsibility to pray. I'm sorry for where I am. And I will pray. And I'll pray again. And I'll keep praying. Pray persistently and patiently. We must pray for the power of God to pray. And we must pray for the power of God to work. Because he does work. And he changes lives. We will find an ability within ourselves to speak and to enlighten others and to be the salt we've been called to be in a corrupt generation as we pray. We must think about God's judgment solemnly and deeply and continually. And you'll find if you read your Bible systematically that it comes up all the time. My last main point is about the heart. The heart is the headquarters of true Christianity in your life and in mine. The true Christian is a Christian in his or her heart. Taylor Smith wanted that barber to have a new heart, not just to do his best. This is what God sees. God sees our heart. What makes a person a true Jew? Paul wants us to see that to be a true believer, there has to be so much more than a little ceremony. Jews, they love to glory in their little ceremonies. And God had taught them some of these little ceremonies and they had a place in their life, but they had a place, they represented things. And you can get so caught up in the ceremony that what happens, all you think about is the ceremony and not what it represents. It's like the Aboriginal lady I knew who loved the Bible and she brought all her children a Bible so they could put them under their pillow and they would be safe at night. That's not what a Bible is for. A Bible is a wonderful thing. But it represents something a lot more important than what we can purport for it or want it for. And it's the same with little ceremonies. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 29. He's saying, what's the ceremony that you're making such a fuss about? What's it all, what's it there for? No, a man is a Jew, verse 29, if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from man, but from God. And if you carefully investigate that subject in places like Deuteronomy 29 and other places in your Old Testament, you'll find it was the heart that mattered, even with that little ceremony. It, what it stood for. It's a very simple thing to impress people. You can impress the preacher or you can impress the pastor by all kinds of performance. The pastor is unable to see the heart. The preacher is unable to see the heart. God alone sees the heart. 
It's not that you belong to a particular culture. It is your holiness and your purity of heart. That is what God is most concerned with. You could have a Christian marriage, a Christian burial service, a dedication or a baptism service. You could even have an answer to prayer. God knows that these things are not enough when the heart is far from God. Verse 29 is a very fitting climax to Romans chapter 2. We can come to God's judgment day dressed in all kinds of things, external things, but if our heart is not changed, we're not fit for heaven. All those things can be of very, very, very little value. We must rely on nothing except the Lord Jesus, and that's why we've got chapter 3 coming up. We must rely on nothing except the Lord Jesus. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the headquarters of your life that counts before God. It is not a little formula that assures you that you're okay with God and that you've got that little formula and that's, that's all you need. You, you know the kind of person that says, I go to the Bible and I find whoever believes on him will not perish. I, I believe on him so I will not perish. I'm okay. You're okay and we're all okay because we believe on him. And that person stops there. What about the rest of what God has to say? That is a ground for being a true Christian. It is a ground for being a true Christian, but it's only a start that you believe on the Lord Jesus. You must go further. True Christians are holy because their hearts are holy. Their hearts have been changed. Weak and feeble and imperfect are all the things that true Christians do, but they please God because they have a different heart, a heart that God has made new. There is no real holiness without a change of heart. What is needed in everyone's life is not a renovation. I came to this church years and years ago and it's had a renovation. It's quite different from when I came years and years ago. Your life has to have more than a renovation. There has to be a revolution. What do I mean? Well, read your history and you find out what happens in a revolution. There is a change of government. That's what's got to come in our lives and in our hearts. Somebody else has to come and be in charge. Not little old me and not little old you. You need somebody who is much more capable to be in charge. It's the Lord Jesus himself. You need a change of government and that's what the barber needed. Not I'll do my best. A God who gives a new heart sends his son into your heart by his spirit and gives you a change of government. This second chapter of Romans teaches us where we really stand. This is one of the most serious chapters in the whole of the Bible. Am I saying there's no value in baptism? I've been here when people have been baptized. Is there no value in church membership? I think it's something that's highly and well emphasized in this church. Is there no value in daily Bible reading? Of course there is. Bible should be open. 
The next chapter tells us that we have in our hands the very words of God. These are privileges, but they don't save us. They're not enough in and of themselves. None of them help you in a mechanical way, in an automatic way. Not one of them. They're good signs, but they're not to be relied on for the judgment day. They are excellent if the inward reality is there. If you've had the change of heart, nothing really matters finally but having a new nature and a new life. If you're having trouble understanding Romans, go to Galatians. Galatians is a summary of Romans. Galatians 6, right at the climax. Galatians 6 verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. You need a new heart. Galatians 6 and verse 15. Have you got the life of God in your heart? Are you a participant in the divine nature? You may well be highly moral. You may well be very well versed in the Bible. You may be able to teach the truth and argue the truth. But you may still be condemned. It is the state of the heart that matters. Have you got a new heart, a clean heart? A heart that overflows with new hope and new power. A heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. We're all hypocrites by nature. That's the nature of sin. Where there's something good, there's always a fake, isn't there? A hundred dollar note, that's the one he'll fake. The, the forger. Where there's something really good, Satan comes along and wants to fake it. He wants to tell you you're okay when you're not really okay. I was playing a game with some children. You know the game Masterpiece? What's a foggery, they asked. What's a forgery? They're everywhere in churches. None of us want to be one of those. We want to be real. Ask God to make you real. To give you the new heart. To give it. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. We were reading there in Ezekiel, weren't we? It's not just for the Old Testament believers, it's for the New Testament believers too. Nicodemus needed a new heart, he needed a new start. He needed to be like it was being born all over again. That's what we need, a heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. Throughout history, the people who begin to know God so often focus their Christianity not on the heart, but on some superficial outward show. So much contemporary churchianity is dry, dead and dull. Largely an external show. Music may be good, but where's the truth? Where are the people with new hearts to sing God's praise? You must all examine yourselves as you come to this chapter, and so must I. Look at the series of questions in verse 21 to 23. Verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Are you talking to yourself about these things? You who preach against dealing... Do you steal? I overheard people a couple of days ago when I was out walking. and They were laughing about stealing. And how many Aussies steal? It's not good enough for me just to overhear them. I've got to speak to myself. What am I doing? How do I assess my value in life? 
Am I covetous? Do I want more and more things? Or do I want God himself and his heaven and what he has for me in the Lord Christ and his love? Do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Remember what Jesus does when he's talking about these words. He exposes our heart, doesn't he? He says those who, it's in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, and he says those who, I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The desire is as damnable as the deed. To want to do such a thing, God sees. You say, oh, but the desire just comes, yes, but you should dismiss it. There's something better that should be in your mind. Temptation is something to be resisted, to push away. I suggest that you only face these questions honestly when you can say, I know, Romans 7 and verse 18, Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I desperately need a new heart and I need the Lord Jesus to come in and revolutionise my life all the time. Change the government all the time. Get me off the bossing of my life and get him where he should be. When you look at yourself and hate yourself and pray quietly in your own room and acknowledge your sin before God and break your heart before him and know that if you confess your sin he is reliable and faithful and just to forgive your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness you know that you're doing what God wants and that you know he'll help you do that again and again and again. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, goes on and on and on, cleansing us from all sin. As I conclude, heart Christianity is too humbling to be popular. It leaves no room for pride. Heart Christianity tells you you are a guilty, hell-deserving sinner and that you must run to the Lord Jesus to be rescued. Heart Christianity is too, pop too holy to be popular. It interferes with our our worldliness, that we want to go the way of the godless world. No, it interferes with that. It requires change and spiritual mindedness. It requires you to guard your heart consistently in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's speak with our God together. Lord God, we thank you for this solemn chapter and the way it's introduced with all the wonderful things that are going to follow in that letter and the wonderful things that follow in our lives as we take notice of what you've got to say for, to us. How can we be bored when we've got such incredible responsibility for ourselves and for those around us? As Lord Jesus, you take over and give us that new heart that we so desperately need. And as you fit us for glory, honour and immortality, Oh Lord God, we ask that you continue to speak to us from this chapter and other chapters that have the same solemn subject and that we may not dismiss these things and reject the truth but that we may welcome all that you've got to say to us 
so that we truly honour you. O Lord God, we thank you for the work of your Spirit as he applies your word to our lives. We thank you most of all for the work of your Son as he draws us to himself and makes us more and more like himself. And we give you praise in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.